Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, let's not dally a bit. We got to get right into it today because I know you are ripping to talk about the connection between demonology and flatulence. That's right. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's hidden in the title itself, right? The Fartonomicon. Uh, we're going to be discussing not only the actual science of farts, but this, this fascinating connection between demonology and flatulence. And I want to note, by the way, that the word fart predates flatulence and goes back at least to the 14th century. And of course, the reality of human flatulence is is far older than humanity. Of course it is. It, it goes deep, deep into time, just as demons seem to do. Uh, so yeah, demonology does seem to have a whole lot of farting in it. And this is one of the funny things. You know, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. I was taught at church, not to say cuss words, and cuss words included a lot of potty language and words for defecation and things like that. But if you go back into, say, the Renaissance or the medieval period before that, you will actually find a lot of pious holy men writing about theological topics who are also quite potty-mouthed. Yes. Uh, They have their head head both in the heavens and in the toilet at the same time. Yes, well, that connection between heaven and the toilet uh, is something we'll discuss here. You know, one of my my favorite uh, accounts, and this, of course, is a a medieval account uh, from one of the great works of medieval literature, and particularly Italian medieval literature, uh, Dante's Inferno. Oh, of course. Uh, To refresh everyone, of course, uh, in in Dante's Inferno, Dante himself is guided by uh, the deceased poet Virgil Mm -hmm. uh, through hell, through the underworld, in a journey that will eventually take him back up to paradise. Now, I love the Inferno, but I honestly did not remember the farting segments oh, of man. the Inferno. So, Robert, you're going to you're going to have to illuminate me, educate me on the farting. All right. Well, I'm going to set the stage here. Here we have our duo venturing into the Malaboga, the uh, uh, the region of the hell with all of these uh, these these pits, these boulders in which uh, various uh, tortures are taking place and roaming about are the Malabrancha, the the evil claws. This is a group of demons that are patrolling about and, you know, torturing uh, uh, as part of their job. And they all have fabulous names like uh, Scarmiglion, which means troublemaker, and uh, Malakota, uh, which means evil tail. And he's apparently the the leader of the group. Uh So I'm going to read just a, a bit here from this encounter. Oh me, what is it, master, that I see? Pray let us go, I said, without an escort, if thou knowest how, since for myself I ask none. If thou art as observant as thy want is, dost thou not see that they do gnash their teeth, and with their brows are threatening woe to us? And he to me, quote, I will not have thee fear. Let them gnash on according to their fancy, because they do it for those boiling wretches. Along the left-hand dike they wheeled about, But first had each one thrust his tongue between his teeth toward their leader for a signal, and he had made a trumpet of his rump. A trumpet of his rump. That is like the (laughs) ultimate hell signal. Yes. Now, we see that kind of blasphemous behavior also in the Monty Python animations. Yes. You know in Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Mm -hmm. There's a scene depicting like cartoon versions of the heavens, and it definitely includes 
people playing musical instruments with their butts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then, of course, I can't help but think of the, 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 the French insult. Uh, uh, I fart in your general direction. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. that too. <laughs> uh, the funny thing about uh, about this uh, trumpet of his rump business is that scholars have actually argued for more than a century, it seems like the last century has really been the period in which this has been a matter of scholarly debate, uh, over whether this is supposed to be funny or not. <laughs> <laughs> Why would it not be funny? <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I vaguely remember my college Dante professor thinking it was funny and generally enjoying the the humor that is to be found throughout Inferno especially. Things get less funny as you get up to towards uh, Paradise. But there, there are plenty of moments that I, I think we can legitimately say are funny within Inferno. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's definitely there in the same time that Dante is uh, depicting in sometimes very uh, lavish and excruciating detail the terrors and tortures of hell. He sometimes also seems to be sort of satirizing the foibles of humanity. Yeah. And, and skewering his personal enemies. Yes, yes. So for instance, those demon names that I mentioned earlier, like Scarmiglion, apparently these na- these names are plays upon various family names that uh, that Dante took issue with as well. Right. Now, in general, we should add there are a, there's a lot of butt action when it comes to Christian demonology. Lots of <laughs> demons speak from their butts. Uh, they seal packs with their butts. And, of course, they're all about doing things to human butts in hell, depending on the depictions. Uh, and you can have a field day teasing apart all of the various elements wound up in this sort of butt-centric myth-making. Folks, if you haven't already figured it out, this episode's going to be heavy with a lot of, like, butts and flatulence. So if you're not interested, <laughs> uh, you may be warned to tune out now because it will continue. Yes, it will It will not stop until we reach the end. Uh, so uh, another thing I should point out, this idea that, uh, you know, this link between demons and flatulence, there is this idea that you see uh, where demons use flatulence against the faithful. I did run across this account of 4th century Christian monk Evagoras of Pontus warning that demons may bloat the faithful with flatulence to distract them from religious observation. That is an insidious tactic. Yes. Did that go in the screw tape letters? That's that's oh, smart. Man, it should have. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, I did run across a contemporary write-up where I think the, the author was arguing for the demonic powers of yoga. Uh, and how it was it was one of these wonderful accounts where they're like, yes, I too have been to a yoga class, and I thought its connections to uh, to a non-Christian religion was uh, was harmless. And then they talk about some of the uh, the signs that you may have uh, a demonic spirit in you, and one of them is flatulence. Really? Yes. Really? Yes. It is kind of odd to see in the modern day people associating an evil spirit or kind of a, a – I don't know. I, I feel like generally the idea of an evil spirit has been more abstracted these days. But mm-hmm. it is very true. If you go back into history, there's a very physical kind of quality to it that it that it is embodied by bad smells and bad physical forces and excrement and things like that. Yeah. And yet still you, you have to realize that all of these individuals – uh, they experienced uh, flatulence as just a, a regular aspect of their lives, an everyday reality of their biology. Yeah, if this guy gets flatulence in church, is that also a demon possessing him? Yeah, I mean, let's let's not be silly about it. Like the, those those guys are gonna fart in church. It's just going to happen. No matter how holy the monk, uh, there is gonna be uh, a, a bit of uh, a flatus in play. 
Now, it's obvious that many people in the Middle Ages and uh, lots of people involved in creating Christian theology and mythology uh, have been interested in the idea of flatulence and the role that plays in demonology. But sometimes it goes beyond the demonology. I mentioned earlier that that some of these theologians really do seem to have their head in the toilet. And who I mainly had in (laughs) mind was Martin Luther, because I know Martin Luther loved some potty humor jokes. And he, he was... He had a he had a wicked witty pen and he would fling just powerful volleys of scatological <laughs> excoriating invective against his enemies. Yeah, there are a number of different uh, uh, Martin Luther quotes that use scatological references. Probably the most famous one is, uh, quote, but I resist the devil and often it is with a fart that I chase him away. <laughs> That's great because – so it's not just a rebuke, but it's also like a de, an in, implied diminishment of the power of the devil, right? Yes. It's like I don't need powerful spiritual forces or strong weapons or anything like that to chase the devil away. I dismiss the devil. Yeah, it's not just uh, merely a uh, get behind me, Satan. Um, it's get behind me, Satan. Now here comes a toot. And of course, there are other examples of this as well. I was looking at a book uh, titled Luther, Man Between God and the Devil by uh, – Hiaiko A. Oberman, uh, who points out that Luther often used poopy language against the devil and his works. So here are just a, a few examples. Uh, and and uh, Joe, maybe you can, uh, you can read these with me. Uh, uh, here's one. But if that is not enough for you, you devil, I also have and p- Wipe your mouth on that and take a hearty bite. Woo, rough. <laughs> okay, we got another one here. A slanderer does nothing but ruminate the filth of others with his own teeth and wallow like a pig with his nose in the dirt. That is also why his droppings stink most, surpassed only by the devils. And though man drops his excrements in private, the slanderer does not respect this privacy. He gluts on the pleasure of wallowing in it, and he does not deserve better according to God's righteous judgment. When the slanderer whispers, look how he has on himself— the best answer is you go eat it. <laughs> he's he's almost there's almost like a childish uh, glee uh, that is uh, that is that is present in these quotes. Yes, and of course Luther being the author of the Christian Reformation, uh, you know the the birth of Protestantism. Luther, of course, had a lot of farty invective for the Pope. Quote: I will give a fart for a staff. You Satan, Antichrist, or Pope can lean on it. A stinking nothing. Man, this is making me think I would not want to make enemies with Martin Luther. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he's going to really let you have it, maybe physically. Now, all of this makes me think that you could actually write a whole book on the cultural significance of farting in middle-age Europe. You could. And, in fact, Valerie Allen did just that. Really? Yeah, in her book, On Farting, Language and Laughter in the Middle Ages, published in 2007. And uh, this is just – this is a rich tome. This is truly a fartonomicon in its own right. Uh Uh, So I I just wanted to pull a few choice tidbits from the text. So she, she, for instance, mentions uh, the 14th century Icelandic tale of uh, of Porstein's Pater Skelks in in which a demon arises from the depths of a 22-seat toilet to confront our hero. Whoa, so is it like the number of seats is proportional to the depths of degradation that the toilet embodies? I guess so, you know, because I'm guessing that those 22 seats share a common pit of of foulness. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's that sort of foulness from which the, the, the demon must arise. 
Uh, she also notes that late medieval art often depicts demons as covered in fecal matter, uh, as well as the mystery plays of the time. So an example of this from Alan, uh, she says that in the drama The Fall of Lucifer, as Lucifer, quote, thuds to his stinking sty, he wails, for fear of fire, I crack a fart. <laughs> and then in The Fall of Man, you have this character, Diabolus, and he cries out, and this is, of course, a translation, on account of this fall, I am starting to quake with a fart, my britches I break. Which, again, is just kind of another almost like grade school poopy insult uh, or parody leveled at uh, at the devil. Uh, it has some of the wit of the couplets you see in like uh, Dryden and Alexander Pope. Yeah. More like Alexander Poop, though, am I right? <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, I want to share one more quote from Valerie Allen because she, she sums up a lot of this very nicely. And, it, it, and she says the following, quote, If in the popular theatrical imagination, Satan's descent to bottomless perdition is punctuated by flatulence, it is a natural consequence to picture him as the load that heaven discharges into hell, the hole of the cosmos. <laughs> I, uh, I I just love that because it does it just sums up so much of this this energy and inner uh, interconnectedness uh, between uh, bodily uh, movements and and flatulence and uh, these demonic entities and just the overall like theological structure of the universe uh, Christian cosmology uh, reduced to uh, just your everyday uh, bowel movement uh, on the potty and of course the the. Christian tradition is not the only uh, tradition to uh, to play with flatulence. Not at all. So yeah, we, we will leave the Christian tradition for a moment and look at the fact that fart humor goes way back and covers pretty much the entire world. There are fart jokes everywhere and they go deep into history. There's actually a writer and academic named Paul McDonald who he teaches at uh, University of Wolverhampton. And he was involved in this list that came out a few years back that was uh, where they were trying to find the oldest jokes known in history. And it turned out that according to this University of Wolverhampton list, the oldest known joke at the time was a fart joke. (laughs) It is a fart joke from ancient Mesopotamia. It's a Sumerian joke that traces back to about 1900 BCE, uh, making it almost 4,000 years old. And it reads in translation as the following. Quote, something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. Okay. Hmm. I think maybe like the the particulars of the joke don't don't carry well across uh, you know more than four millennia. But it, uh, it does seem to yeah it's lost something in in translation maybe language wise and definitely culturally. I don't know if this is topical humor for the time. Mm-hmm. Is it like there was a big problem with I don't know dudes getting married and then their wife farting in their lap? I, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but that's what it seems to suggest. It's like everybody will be like, oh yeah, that always happens. Uh, Sort of a a mandatory uh, contemplation here. Do you think that the presence of an ancient fart joke like this uh, supports uh, the idea of uh, of the bicameral mind, Julian James's theory, Uh, or is it, or is is this, uh, or is this uh, some some ammunition one could use against it? I don't know. I I guess I'd say it's neutral. Yeah, Uh, I certainly wouldn't say supports. Okay. But but I do wonder would would one given uh, the the particulars of uh, of the the bicameral theory would would one have to be 
conscious as a modern human is conscious in order to make a fart joke like this? That's a good question. I don't know how humor would play into the presence of consciousness. Yeah. I, I, I will say, though, that it, uh, I, I love Julian Jaynes's theory, and I would, I would hate it if it were a f- an ancient fart joke that truly brought it down. Like this was the, this was the arrow that managed to, uh, to, to kill the beast. That's the nail in the coffin is yeah. the fart joke. Yeah. Sorry, Jaynes. Uh, could be. Well, I say we look elsewhere for more fart jokes in history. One of the best that I have come across is actually not a verbal joke, but it is a series of amazing illustrations from medieval Japanese art. So, Robert, have you seen these medieval Japanese fart scrolls? Uh, I had not until you showed them to me this morning. I mean, I've seen so many different uh, bits of Japanese art that depict basically just all sorts of body horror, be they in the form of yokai or other monster stories or or even just like the magical testicle-based ability of the, the raccoon dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Edo period Japan, which is the early 17th to mid-19th century, some artist or group of artists created a collection of artworks that have now been digitized, and you can find them at the website of Waseda <laughs> University Library. And these artworks are contained on a scroll known as Hei Gassen, or Fart Battle. <laughs> and the name says it all. You've got dudes blasting each other with farts in every way you can imagine. But not just any farts. These are kind of a supernatural, high-powered fart that appears to have the power to knock people over and do all kinds of damage. It's represented in the artwork as a kind of uh, spreading beam of darkness that comes out of the butt. Mm-hmm. And so it's you've got dudes farting at enemies while riding on horseback. You've got dudes farting through holes in the walls. You've got <laughs> farting on cats. <laughs> I don't know why. Sometimes farting at cats and the cats are like, ah! And then you've got people farting into bags and then releasing the bags on rivals and then repelling farts with handheld fans. That's pretty smart. <laughs> Ooh, that is. That's some straight uh, up uh, like Mortal Kombat yeah, maneuvers right there. All kinds of havoc and destruction. And this particular scroll actually appears to be part of a larger tradition of fart battle artworks. I found one academic article discussing medieval Japanese fart battles in art, and it was by Akiko Yano. The article was called Historiography of the Phallic Contest hand scroll in Japanese art in the Japan Review in 2013. And Yano describes one art scroll housed at the Mitsui Memorial Museum in Tokyo, which is known as Kachie Emaki. And it's a hand scroll that contains both the uh, phallic contest component that was in the title of the paper, which is a competition, quote, among men with surrealistically huge male members. And then it's also got a fart battle component. And in the fart battle section, the only text is a few brief descriptions of what is happening in some of the artworks. Examples of the explanatory text include, quote, they prepare to fart like arrows by drinking cold water to chill their bellies. Okay. Picking sweet acorns and eating them with raw chestnuts, their stomachs are chilled. Now they line up to fart like arrows by eating hot rice porridge. Okay, now this lines up with some of the science we'll be discussing later. Yes. And finally, they collect the farts in a bag and prepare to volley (laughs) fart arrows. Okay. Fart arrows. Fart arrows. All right. I really like the way that's written as if it's like you should already know what a fart arrow is. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, another interesting thing Yano points out in the article is that many of the figures depicted in these artworks releasing these huge sort of fart hadoukens are uh, supposed to be priests. They're dressed as priests. Ah. So you have to wonder, it's like, is there a satirical aspect to this? 
Yeah, I mean, we see this in East and West, right? This idea, perhaps, that you know, no matter how holy this particular holy man or woman may seem, we all know that they fart, right? And we can imagine it, and sometimes, if we're lucky, we can hear it, and uh, and it it serves to sort of knock them down a peg, at least in our minds. Okay, I got one more good one, Robert. Okay, did you did you know previously about Roland the farter? I had not heard of Roland the farter. No, do tell. Of Roland the Farter. Well, there's a really great Warren Zevon song about him. No, I'm getting confused for something else. <laughs> ah, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, yeah. Uh, so there is a section on good old Roland in the book A Social History of England, 900 to 1200, ed- edited by Julia Crick and Elizabeth Van Houts. And uh, this is discussing what went on in the court of the English King Henry II, who ruled in the middle of the 12th century. So uh, I'm going to read this quote, quote, At the royal court, Christmas was evidently a time for special entertainments, as suggested by the records of one Roland Le Pateur, also called Rulandus Le Farter, (laughs) who was granted a sergeanty, apparently of the late 12th century. And a side note, a sergeanty was part of the feudal system where a person would be awarded control of a feudal estate in exchange for some non-standard service rendered. So basically, it was kind of like a feudal knighthood. You'd be given a grant of land, except instead of being a, a knight in service of the king or the queen, you would do some kind of other service. But going back to the quote, his grant is typical of that given to favored entertainers as well as to others of service to the king. In his case, it included the requirement of performing saltum siffletum petum, or a jump, a whistle, a fart, <laughs> before the king on Christmas Day. The phrase was a stock expression and seems to represent standard buffoonery, the kind of thing that would constitute a jester's performance. And so it is likely that Roland the Farter was a royal jester and the fart was his stock in trade. <laughs> I wonder if these were legitimate farts or were these uh, like sort of clown-based farts? Did he have some sort of, uh, of oh, whoopee it, cushion device? Was it a palm in the armpit kind of thing? Yeah. Because... I would tend to suggest they wouldn't settle for anything less than the real thing. Isn't that interesting? Because you, you can – in the same way that uh, – you know, we have these these festivals uh, in which uh, the fool is made king for uh, for a day. You know, everything's the reverse for the for the jester. What, right. in, in the in the actual king's court, to fart in the king's presence uh, could be a, 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 a extreme embarrassment. It could it could diminish your standing yeah. uh, in in the royal court. And yet, the opposite is true for the jester. What it, what if he is called upon to uh, to do his performance and he has no flatus uh, upon which to call? It could that could be disaster. That could could cause his head to be separated from his body. Yeah, I can't remember the details, but you've just called to mind a story I think I recall about some lord or some some noble dignitary, whoever, who was appearing before Queen Elizabeth I. Yes, and who I've heard this one. farted in her presence, and it was so embarrassing that he essentially had to leave the country or at least it disappeared to somewhere uh, somewhere far away for a while. But then came back is the, the, the version of the story that oh, I really? heard. He, yeah. he came back years later and uh, presented himself before the queen. And she said, I remember you. You're the boy who farted. Um, again, again, <laughs> fart, if fart I remember. once and it's your whole identity. Yeah, that's like a – I think that's a human fear. Like that if if, if you let one rip in the, uh, the wrong context, uh, that fart will haunt you forever for no good reason because, again, everyone does this. This is a, a basic – 
aspect of, uh, of human behavior. Well, unfortunately, that is exactly the route that the role in the Farter story goes down. So it has a kind of sad ending. According to stories collected, actually, oh, you know what I just realized? Uh, in a book that's the same Valerie Allen book you mentioned earlier. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so in that same Valerie Allen book, uh, apparently she she talks about how a later king, probably Henry III, uh, took the crown, and the story goes that the laughs dried up, and this king did not find Roland's act very funny, and he revoked Roland's grant of land, citing the fact that his buffoonery was indecent. But Alan also notes that some things about the timeline don't really add up. The, these chronicles would have Roland the Farter having a career that was like 120 years long or more. Mm-hmm. So something about the story is probably garbled or wrong, but there does appear to be some kind of historical core to it. We do think there was a Roland the Farter who farted for his bread and butter. Huh. Well, I wonder if it, it – this is mere uh, speculation on my part, but I wonder if it could have been more of a role. It's kind of like Bozo the Clown or oh. you, know, you could have m- – different actors playing Roland the Farter and therefore he, he could live for It's like the doctor. Years. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, every time the doctor disappears, you have a new Roland the Farter Time Lord shows up. Yeah. The basic, uh, that basic transformation scene except with uh, farting sounds added. Get on it, Hollywood. I want to see the Roland, Roland the Farter Chronicles. All right. I think we should take a quick break and when we come back, we will look at the science of flatulence. All right. We're back. So what exactly is flatulence? Tell me, Robert. Well, when you, if you boil it down to just the basics, it's gas produced during digestion. And flatus uh, only applies to gas expelled through the anus. So not the cloaca or a specialized gland or duct. We're talking about gas from your anus uh, or the anus of any anally empowered animal. Because, of course, as we, di- we discussed on our, uh, our anus episode, which I'll link to on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There's always more. Yeah, there's, there's always more content out there. But as we mentioned in that, uh, not every creature has an anus. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, it should also be noted that not every animal farts. Uh, and we will get back to that truth as well. But let's talk about the composition of the average toot. Yeah. So how much does the average person fart? All right. So I'm sure people out there are wondering, like, am, am I farting too much? Not enough? I, I've got to know. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it is one of those things that's probably difficult for most people to gauge because it's it, depending on, like, I guess, your what kind of household you grew up in or what sort of culture you're a part of. Uh, sometimes farting is something that must be done in secret. Uh, and blamed upon children and animals. Uh, but apparently the average person uh, lets rip between 500 and 2,000 milliliters of gas per day. And each bout is likely to be 35 to 90 milliliters. Okay, I just did some extremely rough math on that. And it looks like that would average out to about 20 farts a day on average if you go for the middle of those ranges. All right. Well, I would be curious to, to hear from uh, listeners who want to... Uh, uh, speak truth to that number. Does that line up with your experience? What do you think? Uh, incidentally, I also have run across um, uh, some material in the past that spoke to, at least in uh, uh, in, in some cultures, and maybe all cultures, I don't know, but the, um, it, you're going to have different volumes with, with men and women, depending on is it is it seen more proper for men to regularly pass gas versus women, and therefore women might... Uh, contain themselves more than the men. I'm not sure how that research actually uh, lines up with our figures here, though. Is there fart injustice being done? 
Yeah. I, I mean, again, we come back to the basic reality that this is something that everybody's body does. Yeah. So according to Jeffrey Kluger, writing for Discover Magazine in 19, a fabulous 1995 article, in which his primary source is uh, gastroenterologist and 2013 Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Michael Levitt, who we'll uh, keep coming back to because Levitt mm-hmm. is a big name in the fart science community. Yes. Uh, but according to this article, uh, flatus is 99% carbon dioxide, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and methane. I read somewhere that uh, among some people tested, the nitrogen seemed to be the, the greatest component by volume. Okay. And uh, these are all either swallowed in or with the food or released during digestion. Now, this is all odorless is the interesting part to, to consider here. Uh, even the methane, the remaining 1% uh, of the composition is to blame for the smell. And it's the byproduct of the microbe legions that live in your gut, aiding in your digestion. That 1% is their waste gas. So, yeah, what exactly are these odor-carrying compounds? And by God, there's a study on that. (laughs) So this is a 1998 study by Suarez, Springfield, and Levitt, the same Levitt we mentioned earlier, called Identification of Gases Responsible for the Odor of Human Flatus and Evaluation of a Device Purported to Reduce This Odor, Uh published in Gut. And so... (laughs) I've not heard of the journal Gut before. That's great. Yeah. Uh, All your gut needs met in one place. So they took uh, 16 healthy subjects and fed them pinto beans and stool softener and hooked them up to, quote, rectal tubes, getting off to a good start. Yes. (laughs) So results, uh, results were that most but not quite all of the malodorous compounds in human flatus were sulfur-based compounds. And the following were the major sulfur compounds detected. You had hydrogen sulfide, which uh, has a rotten egg smell, and and it's associated with the microbial breakdown of organic matter in an oxygen-free environment. So if you've ever had that really bad microbial decomposition smell, it's often coming from some kind of anaerobic source. It's breakdown occurring where there's no oxygen in the breakdown area, and it's, it's producing these horrible sulfurous byproducts. And this was followed by methane thiol, which is sometimes described as the smell of rotten cabbage, and it's a major component of bad breath. Huh. And then also by dimethyl sulfide, which has a strong bad smell, also sometimes described as cabbage-like. In fact, I've read that it's produced when you boil cabbage, so part of the bad smell of boiled cabbage is going to be this stuff, dimethyl oh. sulfide. Uh, but it's also in lower concentration when paired with other smells, one of the major components of the smell we identify as the smell of the ocean, huh. which is funny because when you think about the smell of the sea, it's one of those that, that's kind of sitting on the fence between a good smell and a bad smell, right? Right. And, like and it, it's determined kind of, by context, really. Exactly. It's kind of nice, but it can also get kind of kind of foul. Hmm, Yeah. I guess it's when you're actually at the ocean, you know, that you have you have all the other uh, sensory information to to skew it into a more positive place and mm-hmm. in a definite uh, oceanic vibe. It's kind of like the whole um, like like cheese versus uh, smelly shoes or smelly socks yeah. situation. Yeah, where exactly. Oftentimes, you're essentially talking about a very similar odor. But uh, when associated with the shoes, it is gross. But when associated with a particular cheese, if you are a cheese eater, Mm. then it will excite you. 
I think that's a good point of comparison. Now, so the human judges in judging the malodorousness of different farts, they apparently were able to significantly correlate the worst-smelling farts with hydrogen sulfide concentration. So it seems like the more hydrogen sulfide is in the flatus, the worse it smells. Now, as a side note, the study also looked at a couple of methods for eliminating the odor of flatus. Quote, odor intensity was also determined after treatment of flatus samples with zinc acetate, which binds sulfidryl compounds, hydrogen sulfide and methane thiol, or activated charcoal, utilizing gas-tight mylar pantaloons. <laughs> yes, gas-tight mylar pantaloons. The ability of a charcoal-lined cushion to adsorb sulfur-containing gases instilled at the anus of eight subjects was assessed. And what they found was the activated charcoal anus cushion worked best, and it adsorbed more than 90% of the sulfur-based gases. So if you want your farts to not stink, you can use an activated charcoal anus cushion, and it will apparently work pretty darn well. How come that's not a standard feature in these, uh, these various uh, underwears that one can order online these days. I think maybe there actually is underwear you can get like that. I don't know huh. if it uses activated charcoal, but there are, I've seen advertisements for underwear that is supposed to get rid of the bad smell of farts, and I don't know how effective it is or what it's made out of, but I know I've seen that before. Interesting. Now, Robert, here's a question I've got. I know people are very often prone to link the prevalence of farts and the bad smell of farts to certain elements in the diet. But when people talk about this, it sounds completely random to me. It sounds like they're just making up one thing or another because oh, yeah. there's no consistency whatsoever in what people say leads to lots of farts or bad smelling farts, except maybe beans. Well, then here's the thing too, right? Anything that you – any particular food you associate with a fart – uh, to speak of it uh, uh, thusly is humorous. So if, yeah. I, if you were to say, oh, man, someone's got the, the Tootsie Roll toots today or, <laughs> right. oh, I, I have a bad case of the beef farts. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's, it actually gets funnier, I think, the more mundane the food you say is like, oh, you know, Terry's got bread farts over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, there's nothing that isn't funny. Uh, but as it turns out, there, there is a, a science to what's going on here, and we can classify our foods into different uh, – toot categories. Okay. The more complex the carbohydrates in your diet, the more pungent the odor is likely to be. Really? Yeah. So meat, fish, nuts, and berries, not too much to worry about. Citrus bread and potatoes, those are full of complex sugars. Uh, so you get a, a tootier consistency. <laughs> and then the beans, bananas, and milk, uh, food such as this, that's where you really enter fart city. And this is because the more complex carbohydrates are more difficult to break down, requiring more work in the lower regions of the bowels. Mm. In general, however, uh, it's not only the creature's diet that's going to be a major factor, but also the specific gut flora that they have, right. the specific uh, you know, microbes that are residing within them to aid in their digestion, mm -hmm. uh, but, and then also overall health of the individual. So these, gonna character, uh, these are going to influence not only the character, but the volume of the toots. And high-fiber diets, they have a lot of veggies in them, for instance. These have been linked to increased uh, flatulence as well, uh, as have dairy, starch, and fructose. That's interesting. I mean, not knowing anything going in, I might have assumed, hey, who's going to fart the most? I don't know, maybe people who eat a lot of meat. No, it's the, it's the curse of the, the vegetarian. Uh-huh. Uh, 
But uh, but also uh, Brussels sprouts and meat are also examples of foods with high concentrations of sulfur, oh, leading to okay. the production of that hydrogen sulfide uh, that we've mentioned already, the smell of rotten eggs, but also, hey, uh, the smell of fire and brimstone. Oh, well, that brings us right back to the demonic associations. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder. Now, speaking of fire and brimstone, uh, Mary Roach actually breaks down the flammable components of uh, Flatus in her excellent book, uh, Gulp, Adventures in the Alimentary Canal. Uh, this is this is a fabulous book I've mentioned on the show before, uh, and, and Mary does a fabulous job exploring fart science in at least two different books that she's written. <laughs> so uh, here are some of the facts. Uh, methane and hydrogen are explosive in concentrations higher than 4 to 5%. Okay. And then up to 80% of flatus is hydrogen. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder how that compares to what I read that a major component is nitrogen. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess maybe it's got to be highly variable, right? I imagine so. Now, we've all heard tales of lighted farts. And if you're like me, you might have seen it done on stage at an Atlanta improv show. Do not take that as an endorsement of this behavior. This podcast is not recommending lighting farts, which is actually seriously dangerous behavior. Right. And you, and you will see why it's dangerous as we roll out some of the details. Um, but, uh, but Roach uh, does describe a few of the more harrowing cases of flatus fire, such as the fatal 1977 mishap during a colonic polypectomy. That is the surgical removal of polyps from the colon. Wow. How did this happen? So the gastroenterologist here was using electrocoagulation to, gut, to cut down on bleeding. And uh, about eight seconds into the procedure, there was an explosion. The, the patient's body jerked on the table. Uh, and then the co- the colonoscope was, quote, completely ejected from the body, which uh, Mary interprets as essentially it was launched out of the anus by the explosion. That's so horrifying. It is horrifying, yeah. But basically what happened is that there is there, – the gas in the colon was flammable and the, uh, the, the uh, electro-cauterization uh, device touched it off and bammo. This is why, Roach says, there's so much overkill in pre-colonoscopy bowel cleansing. The patient in this case had followed the pre-surgical instructions. He'd taken the the laxative uh, mannitol to clear everything out. But but while there was no fecal matter inside of him, there was gas. Mm. Now, important note here, uh, mannitol is not used anymore. So uh, Mary Roach urges everyone not to worry about exploding during a colonoscopy. Uh, and she uh, she also points out that doctors will blow air or carbon dioxide, which is non-flammable, into the colon as they work. Hmm. Quote, inflating the colon also helps them see what they're doing. Air creates the magnificent billowing flatulence that rings through the colonoscopy recovery room. Oh, I've never considered that. Apparently it's a thing. If only the fart battle illustrators had known. I know. It would be a, m- a much more fiery uh, affair, right? Uh, unexplored territory here. <laughs> so some of you might be wondering, well, heck, if there is a, a lethal amount of gas in my colon right now, should I be afraid? Should I should I step away from campfires, et cetera? And uh, Roach says, don't worry, basically. Uh, so the, the hydrogen and methane uh, dilutes as you pass gas. So basically, as it comes out into the atmosphere, it very quickly disperses and enters a concentration that's not dangerous. That's right. Uh, to light a fart, and again, we do not encourage you to do so, you'd have to hold the match so that the flame made contact with the gas the second it left the body. Too close for comfort, in other words. 
I feel like the commercial, like showing people skateboarding, do not attempt, do not attempt. Yes. Yeah, we can't drive that home enough here. Oh, and I have to mention this uh, this uh, section from uh, from uh, from the book Gulp as well, uh, because Roach chats with University of Alabama's Stephen Secor. Uh, if you look him up, he al- he's almost always draped in a serpent, <laughs> uh, which is a, which is a, a, an encouraging sign uh, of a biologist. Mm-hmm. And Secor has this interesting uh, theory regarding the myth of the. Uh, of the fire-breathing dragon. Oh, okay. So uh, Im- imagine this. Imagine a, uh, the sort of gas a large snake would generate. Snakes do fart. Yeah, like, yeah, they, they do. Uh, and, and so this would be like a, a python or a constrictor, right? Mm-hmm. Now imagine in that, inside that snake, a, ve- uh, a vegetation-gorged mammal that is also decomposing. So, okay, so like snake eats a ruminant herbivore. Right. That's that it that itself had just previously uh, eaten a whole bunch of grass. Okay. Now bear in mind that uh, many plant eaters uh, lacking rumens have a cecum. This is a pouch between the small intestines and the colon. And animals like rabbits have extra large ones. And the interesting thing is that pythons and boas do as well. Not for the plants they're not eating, but for the plant eaters that they're gobbling gobbling down whole. So that's quite a lot of methane building up in there. So imagine some prehistoric hunters dragging a gorge snake home to the campfire, you know, something that's just thick with its recent meal, some sort of whole large uh, herbivore uh, just lodged in its gut, uh, being broken down. Mm-hmm. So the, the hunters drag this back to the campfire, and they plop it down in front of the fire hard enough to blast the creature's mouth open, and then whoosh, this brilliant f- uh, a burst of flame. I will say that is a highly contrived scenario, but I like it nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful in its own way. Now, I mentioned that Mary Roach has more than one book that explores the, the science of uh, Flatus. Uh, the other is uh, Packing for Mars, uh, which oh, is— Oh, yeah, her... because this actually matters in space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal. Um, she, uh, she explores uh, the thread of, of NASA fart studies uh, in a couple of her books, and these are just a couple of the, the, the choice nuggets here. Okay. She mentions that Edwin Murphy researched an, quote, experimental bean meal uh, fed to volunteers who had been rigged via a rectal catheter to outgas into a measurement device. Uh, he was interested in individual differences, not just in the overall volume of flatus, but in the differing percentages of the gases. Mm-hmm. And owing to differences in intestinal bacteria, half the population uh, produced no methane. No methane? Yeah, no methane. And this, so this would make them attractive as astronauts. But I can also see this could make them a target of chauvinistic attitudes about how real farts contain methane. <laughs> True. But uh, Murphy even reported the, that he had found an individual who was flatus free. So uh, here's a quote. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yo, well, I don't, I, it, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but uh-huh. uh, uh, here's the quote. Of special, uh, of special interest for further research was the subject who produced essentially no flatus on 100 grams dry weight of beans. So he suggested that the astronauts be selected from, quote, that part of our population producing little or no methane or hydrogen. Now, also, uh, it's, it's worth noting that NASA used to keep uh, – uh, our flatus expert and, again, future Nobel Prize winner, biophysicist Michael uh, Levitt, on retainer as a consultant. Mm-hmm. And he ruled that the uh, the capsules uh, uh, that they were using at the time were large enough and, and well-circulated enough to prevent the dangerous concentrations of gas from building up. 
God, can you imagine that being the requirement, though, that shut you down to become an astronaut? So it's like you've ever since you're a little kid, you've trained, you've worked hard in school, you've worked hard to stay fit, you, you're ready to go to space, you're in perfect shape, you know all the astrophysics, you've been a test pilot, mm-hmm. God knows what else, and you're ready to be an astronaut, and they put a rectal tube in you, and they say, I'm sorry, you produce too much flatus. You can't go to Mars. Yeah, it's like you're super qualified, but your farts are weird. I'm sorry. Now, you know, in the past, we've, we've talked about the prospect of genetically engineering astronauts. And, of course, the, the main objectives here would be, uh, you know, to, to make them more resistant to uh, uh, solar and cosmic radiation or, or make them uh, resistant to uh, microgravity bone loss. Yeah. But perhaps we'd also want to ensure a fart-free spacefaring human, uh, either uh, via genetic change in the individual or manipulation or genetic engineering of gut flora itself. Oh, yeah, that that could be a thing. I mean, I wonder if one way to do that would be not so much through genetic engineering from birth, but through, say, like fecal transplants Yeah, to change the gut flora profile. Yeah, I mean, really, there's, there's so much... Uh, left to learn about the uh, the connection between our gut flora uh, and uh, other aspects of our health, not only physical health, but even mental health. Um, I, I believe we've talked about this on the show before. Yeah. The, the idea that in the future, one of the treatments for certain cases of, say, depression mm-hmm. might be treatable via uh, something like a fecal transplant. Uh, yeah, some of the amazing implications of gut flora for all kinds of body health up and down the line uh, are discussed in that great book I recommended a couple of years ago, Ed Yong's uh, I Contain Multitudes, ah, yes. which is all about the, the – it's about microbes and the microbiome and it's just fascinating. I mean the dimensions of ramifications posed by gut flora within humans specifically but microbes all around us generally are, are just un- unbelievable. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break and when we come back – we are going to discuss some of the notable toots of the animal kingdom. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, there is a book that I know you have been super psyched about ever since we got a copy. Yes. Uh, And I've actually, just in the past couple days, we decided to do this episode first, but since then, I've noticed in the past couple days on the internet, other people are catching on to this book. Yes. It's making a buzz. That's right. Uh, the name of the book is Does It Fart? <laughs> the Definitive Field Guide to Animal Flatulence by Nick Caruso and Danny uh, Rabiotti, illustrated by Ethan Kochak. It's, uh, it's been a, a bit of a hit in my household thus far. Uh-huh. Uh, as you can, this is one of those books that you can just flip through it, land on any particular page, and there'll be a profile of a specific animal. It's, uh, it's very easily digestible. Yes, very easily digestible. It has some just delightful illustrations. Uh, and I've, I've been reading sections of it to my wife, to my five-year-old son, uh, to myself, and it's, it's tremendous fun. So mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend getting a copy of this. I'll make sure there's a link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Well, let's talk about a few examples. All right. Well, first, uh, yeah, a few examples of just exceptional uh, tutors in the animal kingdom. Uh, the first one I want to profile here is the, the West Indian manatee. All right. I was really impressed with this one because we've discussed uh, manatees a couple of times on the podcast this year. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've recently got to see some both in the wild and, and in an aquarium setting. Uh, but I, I had not heard this particular tidbit. The authors point out that, quote, 
The manatee's intestines have small pouches throughout that allow for gas storage. This unusual anatomy allows the West Indian manatee to manipulate its farts as a mechanism for buoyancy. Hmm. By storing gas within specific areas of their intestines, manatees can make their bodies more buoyant and float towards the surface, while the compression and release of flatulence makes these animals sink. Amazing. Yeah, so they're, they're... it's it's almost like there are these these fart powered blimps flying, <laughs> you know, through the ocean, uh, and they point out that in fact, if uh, if a manatee is constipated, it screws everything up, and they'll often float with their tail too high because there's too much gas built up there, it throws off the buoyancy. You know, I was flipping through this morning, and I found a section on iguanas, and so I was that that intrigued me. Iguanas sometimes they've got this look in their face, like I don't fart. <laughs> but, they do but, uh, look but, a little proud, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they're they're lying. They're lying to you because iguanas do fart like geckos and other lizards. They fart. The rhinoceros iguana or Cyclura cornuta, uh, they apparently tend to produce, quote, wet sounding farts. Hmm. Uh, and they fart more when they have high fiber diets. That makes sense. Or lots of parasitic infestation. Uh-huh. Green iguanas, which are popular pets, are herbivorous, which means more farts. And iguana owners have actually commented pretty often that their lizards produce loud farts during defecation. Okay. Uh, one that I found interesting was the the termite. Mm-hmm. You don't you might not think about farting termites, but uh, uh, here's the thing: they're kind of super farters. And according to the authors here, they produce five to nineteen percent of global methane emissions. What? Yeah, how or, is that possible? Yeah, or point two seven percent of greenhouse emissions. Termites. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, just in there munching wood and and tooting. Now. Um, They also get into dinosaurs a little bit, uh, specifically uh, talking about sauropods. Mm -hmm. So as we'll discuss, birds do not fart. So it's possible that their dino ancestors did not either. Mm -hmm. But sauropods, however, these are the the gigantic uh, uh, plant-eating engines Mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of prehistoric times. Uh, they likely depended on hindgut fermentation to break down those massive meals, uh, resulting in quite a bit of gas. The authors point to one study's estimate of 1.9 kilograms of methane per sauropod per day. Now, speaking of methane-producing herbivores, I think we should look at the cow. Ah, yes. There's actually a section on the cow in this book, but I also did some extra research on the cow because uh, obviously the cow farts. But you might be surprised to find out how because you might have heard that, for example, cows are a major source of greenhouse gas emissions. And whether that's true depends on how you define major. But it is true that methane and other gas emissions do contribute to climate change. There was a 2014 report produced by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and it estimated that in 2011, methane emissions from livestock accounted for 39 percent of all greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Now, that's from agriculture, not 39 percent of total emissions from all sources. And just to put that in context, according to an analysis by the USDA, uh, they estimated that agriculture accounts for about 10 percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So that'd be 39 percent of 10 percent. And among that 39% of agricultural emissions produced by livestock, a full 74% came from cattle. There was 55% from beef cattle and 19% from dairy cattle. And the rest were from things like buffalo and sheep and goats. 
Now, a lot of this gas production comes down to the cow's herbivorous diet and digestion method, which Caruso and uh, Rabiati say can produce between 100 and 200 kilograms of methane emissions per cow per year. Wow. And when you're measuring in kilograms, you're, you're thinking about a gas. So it's like that much gas weighing that much. It, it's kind of hard to fathom. But you might have often heard this idea or this line of thinking summarized as, wow, cow farts are really contributing to climate change. Although cows do fart, the majority of their emissions comes, here's the kicker, not from farts, but through the other end of the cow, ah. straight out the mouth. So cows expel a great deal of methane through burps and through simple exhalation when, they re when they're breathing. And some researchers think cow emissions can be curbed by altering their diet in targeted ways, such as like feeding them different types of seaweed that inhibit the production of gut methane. But they've got this ruminant digestion method, right? And so they end up just spitting out a lot of carbon dioxide, methane, and greenhouse gases from the mouth. Huh. Well, you know, that leads in nicely to the, the first of a, a few notable abstainers we're going to mention here uh, from the uh, the book, Does It Fart? You mean animals that do not fart? Yeah, or may not fart. Uh, in some cases, the, the, the science is still out. But uh, the, the first is the sloth. So sloths are... I don't, I don't believe it. Sloths really? must fart. You just look into their sort of... Uh, lazy eyes and you just assume that there's some farts going on? Yeah, my ignorant intuition trumps any science <laughs> on this matter. I know sloths fart. Well, all right. Well, here's the thing. Uh, according to the authors, sloths, of course, are famously slow and they boast incredibly slow digestion. As many as five days can pass between their poops, at which time, of course, they often climb down from the tree canopy to do their defecation. And they have uh, an incredibly leafy diet as well and simplified gut flora that doesn't produce flatus. It produces methane. But the methane is absorbed in the sloth's blood and is breathed out. Wow. So the takeaways here, uh, sloths may be the only mammals that don't fart. We'll discuss another possible mammal uh, or variety of mammal in a second. And it also gives me hope that the giant sloth uh, megatherium breathed fire. Oh, along the lines of the dead snake. Yeah, like maybe it, it was, uh, I'm not sure how it would get that spark. The spark is the hard part, but if you have a giant sloth breathing out a bunch of methane, then there's, there's hope for fire breathing. I'm trying to imagine how it would happen. What would you have? Like you'd have a, a megatherium who had a symbiotic relationship with some kind of uh, commensal uh, bombardier beetle maybe that <laughs> like spit some kind of hot compound in front of its mouth right as it was exhaling and then you got the fire coming out. Yeah. I'm trying. Yeah. Or I don't know, some sort of um, like, uh, you know, flint based uh, like scraping of rocks. Mm -hmm. Like it, uh, it carries them around in its mouth. Uh, but we're getting into dragon territory on this. Uh, well, you mentioned another mammal doesn't fart or at least possibly doesn't fart. I want to know what that is. All right. Well, yeah, this would be and this is a, a, an open question, but uh, possibly the bat. So they're mammals, and so they have the right gut bacteria to produce flatus, uh, but their digestion is rather speedy to cut down on weight for flight. Hmm. The authors point out that even the largest species of bat, the so-called flying fox fruit bat, has a mouth-to-anus digestion time of 12 to 34 minutes. That's crazy. That, that is fast. And also, if you've never seen what a flying fox fruit bat looks like, just look up a flying fox. These things are too big to have wings, <laughs> uh, or at least too big to be mammals that have wings. I guess there might be bigger birds. I don't know. They're huge. They, they are very sizable creatures. And the idea that they're digesting their food in around 30 minutes or less is incredible. 
a one when you see a flying fox hanging upside down, you're kind of tempted to think that this could be the inspiration for like the idea of bats as vampires because yeah. they don't, they look kind of like people. Yeah, they have this like humanoid, uh, like like a, a lupine appearance. Now, the other major category of note here are the birds. Birds don't fart. They have all the right, uh, you know, bits of their anatomy, uh, but they lack the gut bacteria to produce the gas. So uh, the authors of uh, Does It Fart, uh, they mention a 1963 observation by a Cornell graduate student by the name of Alan Richard Weisbrod, who described a, quote, small puff of whitish gas uh, during a Blue Jays defecation. <laughs> but experts later, they, they argue that, like, you were basically just observing warm water vapor in the cool air, and so this was not a fart. It's like when you can see your breath. Right. That's not a fart. Yeah, I mean, really, when you come down to the like the scientific observation of farts, like that's how do you how do you see that? It's kind of like trying to see a ghost. That's why you have to have rectal tubes and whatnot. I mean, is there really a reason to inflict rectal tubes on blue jays? No, I mean, especially since everyone seems to agree that birds do not fart. So let's not go inserting any tubes that aren't strictly necessary for science. Robert, this has been such a wonderful exploration. It has. This has been a fun one. We got from demons to jesters to sloths. I I don't know how this happened. But it happened. (laughs) And here we are, closing uh, the fabled uh, Fartonomicon, at least for now. Uh, We we would ask our listeners, hey, would you like to hear more about the the science of uh, of farts? Uh, Then let us know. Maybe maybe there's more. I'm sure there's more. A deeper dive into uh, medieval fart literature, perhaps. Uh, and also, I'd love to hear from any of those near tootless uh, individuals that we referenced earlier. Are you one of those rare individuals who produces uh, little or no uh, um, hydrogen or methane in your flatus? Uh, are you in space right now? Uh, let us know. We would love to hear from you. We're just inviting people to lie to us. Yeah, I don't fart. Yeah. I, I wonder how much lying is perpetrated around flatulence. It has to be one of the major contributors. Surely, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, in the meantime, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, uh, including this one with links uh, to some of these uh, books we were referencing. Uh, Also, I'm going to try and put together some sort of a gallery to go along with this episode (laughs) because we've referenced some fabulous works of art here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I can collect a few examples for you. Uh, And, hey, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you'll also find links going out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, etc. Huge thank you, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know your feedback on this episode or any other, or to suggest a topic for a future show, or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hear ye, great demons of hell. Watch over us, your disciples. We dedicate ourselves to your service 
and accept your might and dominion. We call upon your infernal names. Satan, Beelzebub, Fladastaroth, Farthamet, Toots for Realsies, Barbarigmus, Crepitus, Rip One and Tootsifer. Arise from the depths of thy cosmic privy and give us a sign of thy power. 